No, so it just it got like a bunch of responses from like, yeah, this is right on. Like, if Bernie doesn't win, I'm gonna get a machine gun. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I did not suggest that that was something you should do. <laughs> they were like, we're gonna go full rowdy rowdy Piper, and I was like, right, because it worked out so well for him <laughs> in They Live. And then I was like, holy shit! Like all these dudes, they have problems that. No politician can fix you. Only you can fix your problems, right? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I would say that a lot of the problems we have, I think what you're sort of talking about are like personal issues and a lot of those issues stem from poverty or like or like deprivation of various kinds. I, I'm, I'm more optimistic about this, I guess, than you are. That like if we readjust how things are apportioned, in this country then like yes a politician or a group of politicians or a popular movement probably can do a lot i don't know are you really do you really believe that or are you take taking a piss as they say in the uk i don't know i honestly am not sure like i know my own life was probably career-wise on like a better trajectory when the economy was in a more solid direction but i don't know that that's has anything to do with i don't know uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the problem. I think that the dispiriting alienation and hopelessness is, it's bad for you, but it's, it's uh, you know, it could be good for them. I think that's part of it. It's like you're giving in to this idea that there's nothing that you can do in connection and in collaboration with other people to make your life better. I think that there's the beginnings of a movement that people are, are sort of waking up. And one of the ways that this is framed is that people are, quote unquote, more involved in politics now. And I think that that's part of it. But there also, I think there's this awakening that's happening, to borrow QAnon's phraseology. <laughs> there's an, yeah, right. Uh, I think there's an awakening that it is possible to ask for the government to ask society as it's constituted to deliver more for you because it currently it is delivering for some, but for the vast, vast majority, it's not. And I think that you can ask more. You can ask for more. Why not? Yeah, I guess... Why is that a problem? Why no, is it no. on you? I guess I, I totally agree with you on that. I guess there's just a part of me that says like, okay, cool, everything amazing happens. You know, Bernie gets elected or, you know, someone else who sort of has the right views gets elected goes to work for us like am am i gonna wake up and just suddenly be happy because that happened like no there's still a lot of work that i have to do on my own and to get my life where it needs to go well yeah absolutely i mean it's not a movie i mean you're not gonna triumph over the force of the darkness this isn't like a, a luke skywalker scenario or a neo scenario or a dark city type thing where one guy is just gonna turn a turn our city around to face the sun and give us a beach yeah. It's not like that. No. I mean, no. there's an immense amount of work to be done. There's an immense amount of territory to be clawed back, you know, metaphorical territory to be clawed back. But it's it's a real process and it can happen. I or, agree. Or at, least, or at least allowing yourself to believe that it could happen is... Yeah, it's definitely the first step. So you don't have to be fighting the strangers on your own, making Shell Beach. We could have collective right. action. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome. I'm your host, Asher Lack. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Alan Sussman. What's up? And Raphael Ruttenberg, ESQ. Hey. And today we are talking about 
Dark City, 1998, Alex Proyas. Did we see this in theaters together? I saw this with a different friend of mine who... Wait, you have other friends? I'm fairly certain is now a CIA operative. Okay. Because his job title is like business. And, and it's like, you know, the last time I saw him, it was backstage at when, when we played in D.C., and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I was living in France for two years. And then I was like in Guatemala and like something else. And like then I bumped into his parents and they're like, oh, yeah, he's working on some like drone technology business. And I was like, oh, OK, cool. This is all above above board zone. Oh, yeah. And he also introduced oh, yeah. me to Will Manneker, which is weird. Oh, OK. Um, Small world, huh? Yeah, it is. I'm going to cut all that. So I, Did- I saw this movie for the first time with really oh yeah. she came over to my house i love this already we watched the movie together she hated it on vhs and then left yeah i think it was on vhs she hated it. And, <laughs> and now you're married <laughs> yeah so it all Origin works out story to the sea <laughs> oh shit that's kind of cute was it a date i think it was a date that i didn't realize was a date yeah Oh, you lame brain <laughs> <laughs> i think raf was the only one of us who knew that like dates were dates when we were in high school. That like if somebody was like, "Hey, do you want to go to the movies?" You'd be like, "No, but I do want to." I'm cutting that. Oh my god. <laughs> I think that yeah. I mean, if someone asked to spend time alone with you, they that's, definitely that's want to probably be I mean, yeah right. You were you were so smart. Usually, nice usually a date, even if they're not like you know expressly. You know, the, leaving leaving it open for the suggestion that there could be of various kinds. You could maneuver your way like into what? that. I don't know. This is is it <laughs> like what? <laughs> Toe sucking, <laughs> finger sucking. I don't know. Hair I smelling, touching, nipple cherishing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Fucking cock worshiping. <laughs> yeah. Just Doesn't need to involve touching, does it? Just a whole lot of <laughs> contactless orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> There's okay. all sorts oh of things. God, it's do. a veritable <laughs> symphony of what is that mesophilias? And what is that? Is that an or- is that an <laughs> orgasm that you get without any contact? Yeah, yeah. You're not work? operating on that psychic level. You got a sh- tantric. Call your fucking guru, Alan. No, but really, uh, is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. Some people claim to so be able to sucking. do that. <laughs> Never heard of it. So, initial thoughts on this movie? Well, we we did this movie. Now it's like two years ago or something, yeah, so probably, right? Full story, we tried to do this maybe when we first started the show before Raph was even on it. Yeah. We realized we weren't funny without Raph. Yeah, we realized that we were nothing. So we cut all those episodes. Yeah, those episodes are gone, <laughs> baby, gone. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, well, my first sort of thought about this is that this movie basically got erased from history because... The Matrix. Yeah, because it came out a year before The Matrix. So, like, listeners right. of the show, you probably haven't heard of this movie or seen this movie and if it's you have well known i don't think it is i okay. mean yeah i yeah, I, think, I, don't, I don't i feel like it isn't really i think well it's known. like one of those weird under the radar classics and i'm so glad that we got to revisit it because for years the only version of it you could get was the director's cut which is not as good as the theatrical release like they tried to bury it and it's it's so much more coherent. It's so much more lyrical and beautiful and makes so much more sense than the director's cut. What did the director's cut do to it? I don't know. They just like added a bunch of scenes and they cut all the opening voiceover so that you have no idea who the strangers are at the beginning. 
It's like it's it's right. just like throws you right into the action, and you're like, who the fuck are these bald headed dudes? Why is that door appearing out of nowhere? Like this makes no sense at all. I feel like I would have liked trouble imagining. I feel this. like I'd like that more. I was a little annoyed with the voiceover. It's hard to say because I've seen this movie now. It's the third time, but the reveals didn't really feel like reveals in this movie. It was like because they tell you so much going in, and they ex- they just explain more. I feel like what was cut for the director's cut was a lot of the exposition and like just explaining what's going on, right? Scenes that are explaining what's going on. I guess I thought it gave everything context and made so much of the movie makes make sense mm. in a way that it really doesn't without that stuff. Yeah. I got to say, I, I saw the theatrical release and I, I remember being still, as it unfolded pleasantly, not, not surprised, but like, half surprised by mm-hmm. by how things were revealed over time like how they built the world up bit by bit like there's a lot of stuff i didn't remember and i thought it was actually pretty cool how they did it you know just to jump ahead Kiefer sutherland's the at the the culmination of the story at the uh, climax of the story Kiefer sutherland gives him me- like memories that he's created but like enough to be able to harness it basically is the Matrix. Another, it's another form of that, like so uploading consciousness. It's really bizarre. <laughs> it's crazy that this how movie, similar these movies are. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that that's why it got buried. But this one, it doesn't have like string acrobatic martial arts, and it doesn't have lots of guns, so it's not going to be as popular. Yeah, and the world, uh, for, you know, for, obviously, is like a weird. Instead of like a futuristic sort of tech noir you're dealing with like a 1940s art deco kind of weird nightmare world. And no one wears sunglasses. Yeah, there's no sunglasses. No sunglasses yeah. I think there's zero sunglasses in this. Yeah, well, they weren't invented yet. But it's all True. at night. In 1998. They were invented in late 98 after this movie came out. Yeah. I think my biggest... Jebediah Ray-Ban. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, my biggest thing about this movie is that I, I don't really like the, the main actor. Like, Rufus Sewell. Yeah, he just doesn't really have... I can't exactly figure out what I don't like about him. He doesn't have that Keanu should have said quoi. <laughs> he just doesn't have it. He doesn't have the leading man yeah, stuff. He doesn't have leading man vibe. Yeah. He's he's character yeah. actor. And that I this movie really suffers from that, which is so unfortunate. So this movie is also part of a sort of micro genre of movies that came out, I'd say like ninety six through ninety nine of like reality isn't really what you're experiencing, right? It was like this movie. The Matrix, The Thirteenth Floor, and the Cronenberg movie Existence, I think, round yeah. that kind of weird thing out. I was thinking about this movie in the context of where it sits with the end of history, like historically, right? Like at the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s, the fall of the Soviet Union, and kind of the idea that there is no apocalyptic Armageddon battle that's going on in the consciousness. But then all of these movies are cluing into this idea that actually there is an apocalyptic crazy battle going on. It's just we've all been conditioned to not see it. And I thought that that was kind of an interesting thought, this as a lead up to 9-11. And it's like, oh, actually, like the Imperial Project is going to be the nightmare thing. And we all end up red pilling in that direction, if that makes any sense. or Yeah, because I think that the dangers that you are facing up front in your face day to day, threat of nuclear annihilation during the Cold War formed a lot of science fiction and yeah. then when that is seemingly passes from the scene what else is there i mean there's like a deeper existential dread despite assurances that things are okay there's this nagging feeling that maybe things are not okay there's a narrative being put out there that everything oh you know the danger has passed things are fine but you know on some level that's not true and then after 9 11 you know the zeitgeist changes again it flips back to 
everything is always wrong all the time. There's this kind of like omnipresent threat of terror that could come literally out of the sky, out of nowhere, and just up and end anything, and we're not safe. It's not dissimilar from like American Beauty or Fight Club or a lot of the other movies that were in the cultural zeitgeist at the time of just like, there's something deeply wrong going on in society, and nobody quite has their finger on what it is. And there are explorations of what happens when someone gets hip to that thing that's wrong. But like the 90s, I mean, it's weird that we all like, we were in high school in the 90s. So obviously, it feels like a more innocent time in a lot of ways, part of because of our nostalgia. But also, I think it just was. Yeah. I think I, that it was a very brief, weird Pax Americana where things were not okay, again, for most of the world. But in terms of how the American empire experienced it, it really was like there was a sense of security that you weren't facing, I think, wrongly. I think that people felt this wrongly and at a surface level that they weren't facing threat or annihilation or anything like that. And people who are sensitive to these things, I think that the movies you're talking about, this, The Matrix, Fight Club, Fight Club, American I think Beauty, they, yeah, American absolutely. Beauty, I mean, un, you could un, even read it into election. There are so many movies from that era that are just like people metabolizing that that feeling of safety, that feeling of peak. And I, I'm sorry I interrupted no, you. No, that's fine. That that feeling of we're at the top and we we did it. We fucking won. Is like there's got to be somebody saying this isn't right. We can't. You can't just win. It doesn't work that way. And there's got we're we're obviously ignoring something. And I think that these movies now, when when I watch them, and particularly this one, are screaming out and the Matrix like hey, something is deeply wrong. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Like, what's crazy is that we have the peak and that this is a very unconscious reaction to that, or at least to me. Like, there's nothing that feels overtly political about this movie or about The Matrix or about, I mean, I guess to some degree Fight Club, but it's very like a Gen X-y, like, fuck Starbucks, you know, or all of these kind of mid to late 90s movies that are really about the structures of power being not illusory, but part of a greater system where we're believing in illusion. And actually, I think Starship Troopers is another movie that obviously is a satire and is very self-aware in a way that none of the other movies are. But there's something about this movie and Starship Troopers that felt like sides of a coin to me where I always want to keep going back to them and I always feel like there's some deeper truth to the movie. And I think that that, to me, that was the truth that I kind of hit on this time what you're looking at is just like how things are set up and there's still an existential dread there's still a feeling of wrongness of dislocation and that's interesting because it only happens for a little that's only a brief period yeah it's literally 95 to 2000 this movie is i think a very good expression of that i think this is also just a really good movie i think it just like i don't know the the version i saw the theatrical release just works really well i mean it's just like it hits all the beats really well yeah. Aside from like some not great acting. Yeah, there's but it has Ian Richardson. Uh, he's Mr. Book. Mr. Book. Mr. Hand is Riff Raff. Mr. Hand is Richard O'Brien from, yeah. yeah. Oh. All right. So should we break this plot down? Go for it. Yeah. yeah. So for listeners of the show who haven't seen this movie, I strongly urge you to watch it. It's great. I don't think that the spoilers are really going to ruin anything about it. There are some spoilers in this episode, but... I think it's fine. I think that the journey is is great, spoiled or non. And uh, yeah, and I think that if this movie hadn't come out, you know, a year before The Matrix, it would be a lot more famous. Can you imagine sequels to this movie? I I think about that constantly. Dark How, like, City Reloaded. 
Well, just like how in the 90s they could afford to make like huge pieces of IP that they didn't care whether or not they had sequels. That's mind blowing to me. The amount of money and world building that went into this movie and, and the studios were just sort of like, yeah, I don't know. Can we get an action figure out of it? Who cares? Okay, next one, you know? They're, they could have made a Dark City prequel, I guess. They could have, and it right. would have been very interesting. I mean, the movie certainly begs a lot of questions. Yeah, Are they orbiting Earth's sun or a different one? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. All right, so for listeners who haven't seen the movie, basically we open on this nightmare city with a voiceover from Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland's character. It's name? noir, but it's like very literally noir. Yeah, like it's, it's black. It's a straight it's a dark up city. throwback to, you know, like film noir and classic 1940s detective Maltese movies. Falcon. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and we get a great voiceover from Kiefer Sutherland, which I loved. I'm sorry you didn't like it. The voiceover? No, I just thought it was giving too much away, yeah. Yeah. So, so did we, you notice how his voice was different in the flashback yes, memories? Did. You did notice that. <laughs> yeah. What well, he's doing, like a like a weird riff on like the old movie classic Igor, right? And he's his huh? makeup is based on that as well. He has like a oh, really? sort of one Troopy of his eyelids droops. Eye. Yeah. So for listeners who haven't seen the movie, it opens on a voiceover from Kiefer Sutherland describing this noir city and describing. The strangers who are an alien race who are doing some kind of an experiment on mankind to understand the nature of the soul because their race is dying out. We don't know why. We don't know why. And they haven't quite. But they does he explain right then that they have a single intelligence? No, that's later. Okay, so we learn later that they're like a hive mind, basically. I don't know why that would cause them to die out. But and he also that's, that's also something I like about this movie is that it doesn't try and literalize this stuff too much. Like the science is. They inject memories into people's foreheads. You know, they <laughs> yeah. don't like try too hard to make this like, you know, yeah. sciencey. This is offensive to those of us who actually believe in the science of trepanation. It has some trepanation vibes. Yeah, there is some trepanation vibes in this. Yeah, the movie sort of feels like a myth or a parable. It has like a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, kind of vibe to it. I like that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we get introduced to this city, and the other thing that Kiefer Sutherland tells us in his opening monologue voiceover is that the strangers have the ability to bend reality to their will and they call it tuning and then we actually see them literally do it right like the opening of the city is or the opening of the movie is everything in the city stops and these bald-headed aliens come in and start switching stuff around and putting people places and we get introduced to our protagonist murdoch john murdoch Oy. yeah wait what do we see them do they're like the buildings moving around and stuff. yeah the right? buildings move around yeah. Uh, later on, we see them like put people in yeah. places. Yeah. People all fall asleep simultaneously at the stroke of midnight. Yeah. People all f- simultaneously fall asleep at the stroke Very of midnight. Very memorable image. We immediately cut to Rufus Sewell, uh, the lead guy, John Murdoch, wakes up in a bathtub in a room. There's a syringe on the floor, and there's like a bunch of confusing mishmash of imagery in his head. And it turns out that there's a dead body there and a phone rings and tells him basically like you have to run away. There's like no memories basically. Right? Yeah, he has no memories. I mean, there's he like, has like a little bit, but he basically like doesn't know who he is or how he got there. Yeah, there's like clothes. He's in the bathtub. There's a dead prostitute with like spiral, Sp- spiral knife wounds. cuts. Yeah. 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 Know, which like that thing of you wake up somewhere and you don't know who you are and you need to like put on your clothes. Like I feel like I've seen that before. Sure. Somewhere. I mean, it's a compelling entrance into something because, yeah. you know, everybody wants to feel like memento. their life could. Yeah, Memento I mean, is a good example of that, which again like, is another yeah. late 90s movie or early aughts. 
I feel like it's also a video game thing, right? Like Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It makes for a good video game, right? You need to like run from people who are trying to kill you for this murder that you didn't do. You need to figure out who you are. Whatever. Yeah, no, Screw it definitely guys. has some gamer vibe. I feel what you what you mean by that. Yeah. Gamer rights. And so basically Rufus Sewell is like running and trying to figure out his identity. And the movie pretty much takes off very quickly into a chase where it turns out Rufus Sewell has is accused of murdering a lot of people in response to his wife, Jennifer Connolly, having an affair. Um, and he's being pursued both by this group of weird bald-headed corpse aliens called the strangers led by richard o'brien from the rocky horror picture show it also had the gyrothopterist from yep mad max from mad max he didn't really say a lot of words but oh i knew who he was (laughs) (laughs) he was trying to hide it but yeah he knew he was the gyro captain the gyro captain um i think mel would have been a good lead for this movie <laughs> no. if you think about it y'all know who's controlling this city it's the jews <laughs> why are you jews chasing me around well i also just wonder like this movie has escaped for a movie that's about like waking up to the control mechanisms that are running your life this movie is not something that right-wing chuds say is about jews which i was very because surprised by. about this movie right yeah nobody cares I, I about really, this movie i really just think the matrix just eclipsed it yeah, I, I guess feel like Chuds would get bored watching this movie because it's too beautiful for them. It's too nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fucking idiots. It's like yeah, it's too like delicate and, and nuanced. Yeah, it was Roger Ebert's favorite movie of 1998. Oh, okay. Which like you know he's he a pretty did. he's dead now, but he was a pretty hard to please critic. And like I don't know, I it, there's a ton of like nods to classic cinema in it. The strangers all dress in these coats and are bald head in white makeup so that it's all a reference to you know uh murnau's nosferatu yeah um obviously Kiefer sutherland's makeup is a reference to igor from the classic frankenstein movies and uh there's there's a bunch of scenes with Kiefer sutherland in a pool in a swimming pool that are references to this like sort of weird classic horror movie called cat people which is like oh, a wow. very important in Never the world of, of cinema. Yeah, it's a pretty cool movie. It's worth checking out that. And I Walked with a Zombie, which is another movie by that filmmaker. Oh, great Rocky Erickson song. Oh, I Walked with a Zombie? Yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. Rocky. Tell me about it. Um, Yeah, so basically the movie very quickly evolves into a, a kind of a chase between The Strangers, Rufus Sewell's character, Jennifer Connelly, and this police officer, this detective played by William Hurt, who is fucking amazing in this movie. Yeah, he's really good. Yeah. His acting is so subtle. He's so on point. It's, I don't know, it's mind-blowing, right? Am I tripping that he was so good? That scene where he's talking to his, like, wildly overacting colleague, like the one who had, like, a mental breakdown. A mental breakdown. Well, Kapowski or whatever. He's taken over the case from a detective who lost his mind. Kapowski. Yeah. Yeah. And he's investigating the series of murders that Rufus Sewell is being accused of doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. And and that that guy is just like climbing the walls, screaming, drawing. He's like, you don't understand. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere. Murderers in my head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like William Hurt is there like. He's like, I see what you're really saying. good at acting. Let's calm down. Let's just get the facts here. I think that part of the reason that it's so good is that like there's a really beautiful emotional underpinning to this. And I, I thought that this was a good compliment to doing The Matrix Reloaded, which we just covered, 
because the Matrix Reloaded fails on so many levels because there's no emotional core to the movie. The relationships between the characters are as close to meaningless as you can get, and it's basically like just a vehicle for like action. I mean, the Matrix Reloaded was like, a kicked in the nuts video compilation. <laughs> I think it was the bum fights of sci-fi <laughs> movies. And this movie does deal with some of that philosophical stuff. I don't know if you guys picked up on the. There's a huge amount of repeated imagery of goldfish and fish in tanks. Yeah. So the when yeah. yeah. So when he first wakes up, uh, he accidentally knocks over a goldfish, uh, a goldfish tank, which breaks. A gold. Then there's a goldfish flopping around on the floor, and then he puts it into the bathtub that he came out of. So, which was filled with water. Yeah. So I was probably not the healthiest environment for goldfish. Yeah. Especially if there's soap. That one, (laughs) there's like a a bunch of characters have goldfish tanks in their offices and stuff. And Mm. then there's a part where, so Rufus Sewell, who has no memory of his identity, is sort of like ping ponging around this nightmare city and it's dark the whole time. Uh, trying to figure out his identity and trying to figure out whether or not he actually did kill these people. And he's being pursued by William Hurt and the strangers. Um, And I think there's a few really lovely scenes where he and Jennifer Connelly get in contact with each other and have a conversation about their failing marriage, which in the heart of like this crazy movie about fucking aliens is really beautiful. I thought the other thing about him is that he also is starting to have the ability to tune himself which you see pretty early on, right? Like, yeah. yeah, he he uses it to fight the strangers, and then he uses it to like break a lock to get his wallet out, where he right. he like lost his wallet in an automat, which again is another very beautiful scene. The light in this movie again was so aped by the world of the Matrix. You know, fluorescent light looks green when you put it on film. So as he kind of goes through this sort of maze trying to discover his own identity. We realize that all of these characters have memories of this place, Shell Beach, but can't seem to find a way to get there. And it's this haunting image that sort of hangs throughout the movie, which, again, I fucking love. Mm. Yeah, he, like, asks people how to get to Shell Beach, and they're all like, like, first they're like, oh, yeah, I've been there. And then he's like, how do you get there? And they're like, not sure. Yeah, yeah. which, again, is is beautiful. And, and it's like, you know, it's so much about the way that our memories shape us and the way that our collective memory makes us the, a society. And I, I don't know. Maybe I'm full of shit on this. I just like <laughs> this sure. movie. So eventually what we discover is, is that the strangers are running an experiment where they have a kind of giant pool of human memories and they have Kiefer Sutherland, their sort of bagman scientist, construct identities out of this collective pool of memories and inject them into different people in the city. And then they go and change the city around so that these identities and these people fit into this scheme and and these things that they've sort of programmed for them. Right. And it's in some weird hope that they might eventually understand what makes humans human so that they can survive themselves trying to find the human soul yeah there's this scene where there's a poor family and the strangers can tune so i think that they literally just change the building that they're in from like a poor building to like a really nice building and like the apartment that they're in to like a really nice apartment with all this nice stuff like long table right and they're all, they're both like wearing tux, you know the man's like wearing like a tuxedo now or something <laughs> And they've injected like these new memories where they're rich. And then suddenly they, they go from before they were like arguing about money or something. In a tenement. Yeah. Yeah. To now they're 
the guy is talking about how he had to fire somebody and the woman's like and you were right to do so yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what bernie's gonna do for all of us baby <laughs> and you were right to do it so that was the part where i was thinking like i wonder if this stemmed from a conversation with a social scientist or something right I mean, these are the types of things that social scientists are interested in yeah right it's like what portion of of us is like genetic what portion of us is based on our upbringing yeah it's um, nature versus nurture what yeah. tabula rasa versus you right. know what kind of a genetic person you are if that is a thing mm-hmm. and i think we've leaned a lot more towards like sort of genetic predetermination in the last few years oh really i think so yeah i tend to think that that we attribute a lot of i mean you know a good example would be something like alcoholism, right? Like like mm. we think yeah, of that yeah. as being something that now, oh, there's a gene right. that correlates with that. Depression. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anxiety. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the strangers are trying to answer a philosophical question. Is there something essential to your individuality or are you, um, you know, just a... Uh, some of your memories or, you know, of right. the... Uh, um, the ideas that you take in, like basically... This is kind of the a branch of the mind body problem um, yeah. that we talked about a number of times on this show. Yeah, and ultimately, I think the the question goes unanswered, right? Like they don't really. I mean, I guess they say that it's there is something inextricable about the human soul that goes to its relationship to the human body. I guess. I don't know. I don't know if they actually answer that question. I mean, it's sort of like a fundamental philosophical question. Well, uh-huh. they don't answer it, but th- I they, think that they have their point of view on it is what I yeah. mean to say. And I think that they believe the movie maybe posits that it's, I don't know. Like the the experiment that they're running on John, you find out later, is, is one of these experiments. But what they're doing there is they're injecting him, trying to inject him with the memories of a murderer. They didn't succeed in it. That's why he has no memories because they didn't succeed in injecting him with the memories. He finds out he's a murderer. So then they want to know, is he going to just keep on murdering now because he has these memories and it seems like he just killed somebody, right? Yeah. Um, Because he's mid script, even though he doesn't really have the memories or have the impetus, is he going to keep murdering people? Well, so the experiments failed, right? It's not a good experiment, but the the experiment that they wanted to do was to see if he would still be a murderer, right? Right. Um, which is interesting. I don't know. Yeah, if you could force someone into killing by giving them the memories of having killed. Yeah. And the motivation behind those kills, I right, suppose. Right, Something that's implied is that his ability to tune, you know, he's like, he's evolved this ability to tune. I think what the Keith or Sutherland's character says is that he is rejecting this imposition on him. Like he's, you know, there is there is something essentially individual and I meant to sort of impute that to to all of humankind, there is something irreducibly individual. There is a soul, and that soul is preventing, you know, in this case, is rebelling, an open act of rebellion, preventing him from, you know, assuming the guise of a murderer. Yeah, absolutely. The debate itself is kind of silly. Old old white guys. I don't think it's silly. Well, no, no, no. I mean, outside of the context of this movie, it's not silly, but in the movie, I don't, I don't think that the movie sort of sheds any new or interesting light on it. I don't know that the movie's exploration of this idea is no. really the thing that's nice. Not like, you know, Ex Machina is actually like a really interesting... It's the, it's there. It's like, you know, it's a part of what the makes, makes the movie work is this, this idea yeah. that we're meant to engage with. Sure. And then I guess the crazy sort of reveal is that all of these storylines coalesce together where the strangers kidnap Jennifer Connelly 
and simultaneously, Rufus Sewell kidnaps Kiefer Sutherland, and the three, Rufus Sewell, Kiefer Sutherland, and William Hurt all go, they force Kiefer Sutherland to take them to Shell Beach, which is this place that none of them can remember how to get to, but they all have memories of. And that's when the big sort of spoiler alert reveal that the city is not actually on a planet, but it's like a space station floating around in deep space. They get to the sort of room where Shell Beach is and they break through the wall and they see just dead open space, which that was pretty fucking mind-blowing to me. I think think when I saw this, that was a really cool reveal that I didn't see coming. Yeah. Yeah, that this wasn't actually, that was a good reveal. It wasn't actually on Earth. Yeah. Yeah, that it was just somewhere in deep space and the strangers had just abducted all of these people who live in this place and are running this crazy experiment. And again, it speaks to this real loneliness of like, Oh fuck, where do we go from here? Like, how do we get back home? None of us can remember who we are. We're just screwed. And that's basically what Kiefer Sutherland says to them on the boat ride to shell beach. He's like, yeah, I don't even, they let me keep the part of my memory where I was a scientist, but the rest of it, I know nothing. Yeah. So not even that, just they let him keep his like knowledge, basically. Yeah. Right? But he doesn't have the memories. Like He just doesn't. Yeah, he's yeah. got nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so then there's a confrontation with the strangers led by Mr. Hand. Rufus Sewell uses his tuning ability, but he's not really good, and he ends up getting taken back to their like base where the ultimate confrontation happens between Rufus Sewell and Mr. Book, the head of the strangers. Mr. Book. Which, this is where I thought the movie kind of started to fall apart. It was like, that last battle scene was cool, but not that cool. A little gratuitous. I agree. Yeah, it just was kind of dumb. Yeah. Not even gratuitous, just, yeah, it didn't quite look that good, I think. Yeah, the the CGI didn't really age super well. They should have ninja'd each other, karate (laughs) style. That's right. Yeah, we should have had some more, like, high wire, crouching tiger action in there. Dodging bullets. Crouching rabbi hidden Torah. <laughs> but it's also interesting because the vibe kind of changes. Like that's, it's it's not quite like the rest of the movie when that, it's sort of anime, like that final fight scene, right? Yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a pretty different thing. Like I could see a lot of people being on board for the most of the movie and then getting to there and being like, eh, I wasn't into that. Yeah, what the fuck is this about? Yeah, yeah it becomes an action poop? movie instead <laughs> of like this weird, meditative, creepy, kind of sad, goth vibe that I yeah. love. Yeah, and then, so Rufus Sewell kills the strangers. Kiefer Sutherland injects him with memories to help him. I thought that was... That, wait, that's that, before. That, yeah. that was right before. That. Yeah, I'm sorry. So He pre- learns how to use the machinery which the hive consciousness of the strangers are using to make basically mold reality into the shape that they want it to be in, which we see that as like buildings popping up out of nowhere. Yeah. But he, yeah, he learns how to do that. Like there's like, it's actually pretty cool. Like you're just, you're cycling through the way they do this in like the montage of like, of memories that, that you sort of see flashing forward. Um, And in each one of them, Keith or Sutherland is there and he's like, John, I have something to tell you. And he, it's <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, I love that. That montage is great. Where That's a great device. Yeah, Kiefer Sutherland shows up in his past as like he's like the mailman one minute. The and, ice like, cream the salesman, ice. the firefighter. <laughs> yeah, and every time he's like, John, don't forget that when you're tuning, do this. Have a great day. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and I thought that was great. And so he defeats the strangers and then uses his ability to tune to basically make the world the way that he remembers it. Essentially, water starts pouring out of the sides of the city. Yeah. And he makes this ocean and he makes Shell Beach. Yeah. And the water just like sort of pours out into space. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Which is... So it's sort of like just this flat... There's this sort of flat space station that's just like the city. And then the water pours out kind of around this space station. So yeah, I also thought it was charming how you th- you could sort of tell that they were using like stock footage or like B-roll or whatever they call it of like water pouring out. <laughs> oh, like, really? They, they, Definitely. Like, they filmed like a dam somewhere. They're like, okay. <laughs> and so the movie ends with Rufus Sewell out on a pier and he's talking to, he bumps into Jennifer Connelly. Unfortunately, in the time that Rufus Sewell was killing the shit out of the strangers the strangers successfully erased her memory the implication again is that rufus sewell and jennifer Connolly's character who now has a new name anna are going to get together and they go off to shell beach but again i thought the implication of that was that you know there was something innate to who they were that was going to love one another right that's sort of yeah i that was yeah right i mean one of the last things he says right is like you were looking for the human soul, but you looked in the wrong place. You know, because it's your heart. Brilliant dialogue. That was implied. Um, oh, you're looking up here. Yeah, he doesn't Donald say because it's your heart. Um, but yeah, right. And then there's another scene where the butt chakra. <laughs> there's another scene where he's with uh, uh, John Murdoch is with Jennifer Connelly, and they're like talking about how they love each other, and she's like. And you can't fake that. He's like, you're right. Um, right? Yeah. So love. Love, baby. Love, guys. Love. Love is all you need. <laughs> Transcends alien monsters. But yeah. um, and I think another thing you left out is that at the end, what they're, before J- uh, John has the, you know, the fight, what they're trying to do, they capture John. What they're trying to do is somehow become one with him or something they're trying to imprint him with their collective memory before he fights oh. them because they've realized that like he would be the kind of synergy of the two species right did I you see. also mention that mr hand was imprinted with john's memory and i to f- find him i forgot <laughs> okay about yeah that. that's, that's an important part of the plot yeah. is that mr hand the police are searching for the murderer john murdoch the strangers are searching for the renegade human who's learned how to tune learn how to tune so mr hand volunteers to be imprinted with murdoch's memories because he thinks that'll enable him to track him down better yeah that's right even though he knows that that will eventually kill him because they say that the strangers can't handle being imprinted with human memories right yeah and that's the plot of the movie guys (laughs) yeah we did it yeah (laughs) i think it's harder to talk about the good movies than the bad movies Yeah. yeah Though I, I still, I hold to the fact that like the, the central idea or the central thing that this movie sort of exploded in my mind this time watching it, and The Truman Show is another example of this, is that it, it comes amidst this huge wave of other films about reality not being the thing that we think it is. And I just thought that that was such an interesting thing that that happened historically right before 9-11 and right after sort of the end of history in that weird latent period. But I mean, I guess we've already sort of covered it. We did talk about that. There's something about this movie that doesn't quite work for me. I think it's partially John Murdoch is not really leading man material. And something about the way it looks, everything looks like a set, I guess. 
Yeah, it's all sets, but I I kind of love that. I, don't I mean, know. I that maybe it's probably on purpose since it's a city that they're they constructed with their minds. I did like it. I I like the look and feel of this movie a lot, actually. Yeah. So should we throw two endorsements? Yeah, let's throw it. Yeah, I need, I need to right. figure out what mine is. So Ian Richardson, I think maybe Sir Ian Richardson. I'd have to look that up. Who knows? Um, that dumb country with their stupid fucking <laughs> shitty food. Anyway. <laughs> With um, our dipey royal family, <laughs> uh, inbred, missing. Have you seen our chromosomes? Um, yeah, <laughs> we've lost several yeah, over the centuries. One chromosome, eight chromosomes. Perhaps I, I left it on Jeffrey Epstein's island. I'm actually thirty percent corgi, <laughs> Charlie Roger. Um, yeah. So Ian Richardson did the original. He was Francis Urquhart. In the original House of Cards, the BBC House of Cards, oh. which is really good. And it's three seasons and it's in and out. I respect the BBC for doing this. When they have something that's good, bing, bang, boom, they get it done. They don't prolong it unnecessarily, try to milk every last fucking cent out of it, and it's over. So the American House of Cards started off great or started off really interesting and jumped the shark pretty fast. Yeah, so, I would say probably after like the second and a half season. Yeah, I just like it just started retreading the same fucking plot points over and over and over. And they were totally directionless and looking for somewhere to take it. But yeah, the BBC one's really good. Nice. Alan, what do you got? I can't think of anything. I fucking hate you. <laughs> are you, are you reading Dune Moshiach? I just read Dune Moshiach. It's great. Yeah. Um, now I am reading Franny and Zooey, which is fucking garbage, and J.D. Salinger sucks. <laughs> and anyone who likes him is great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I just... Whatever. It's been we a can, long time. I mean, Catcher in the Rye is... You, you don't Catcher, Catcher is amazing. No, no, no. Catcher is dope. Having read it... I have no opinion on it. Several times. So long as I've read that. Taught it a few times. No, it's great. And that one holds up, and I was kind of surprised at how good it was when I went back to it. And Franny and Zooey is the opposite. I've never read it before, and I was kind of shocked. I'm I'm throwing like an endorsement. Unless it gets brilliant at the end, which it might. I'm only like halfway through. I started it. So you're endorsing Dune Moshiach. No, actually, I want to endorse a podcast that I like called True Anon. Uh, that is, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like some conspiracy brain nonsense, but it's really funny. Ostensibly, it started out about the Epstein conspiracy, and it kind of has expanded out into tracing the lines between a lot of these sort of very powerful organizations and their links to the super wealthy and the way that those things interact. And again, it's not really like that galaxy brain conspiracy nonsense. It's a funny podcast. Sometimes it makes me, you know, learn something, but for the most part, it's probably a hundred percent fake and garbage. <laughs> um, so yeah, true and on. Well, if what matters you wanna... is that you're having a nice time. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in guys. You can follow us on social media. I'm at Asher Lack at highly affiligent. At underscore Perkunos. Uh, and you can follow the show at Robot House Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much for tuning in. Oh, and it's H-A-U-S. Um, yeah. All right. Until next time, guys. See ya. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.